0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Enrique Martino about his new book, Touts, Recruiting Indentured Labor in the Gulf of Guinea, which was published by De Gruyter Press in 2022. Dr. Martino is currently a faculty member at the Complutense University of Madrid and was previously a fellow of the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies. Enrique, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks Sarah, happy to be here and thanks for the invitation.
0: So I always like to start by asking uh, my guests to introduce themselves and how they came to their project. Uh, so could you sort of start um, by sort of explaining how you got so interested in studying both history and anthropology, as well as specifically how you landed on the topic of labor history um, and the island of Fernando Poe?
1: Sure. So I, I did my master's in 2008 in anthropology and development at the LSE, and then I just moved to Berlin. But not really with a plan. I was a few years just lounging, odd jobs, reading, reading around political stuff. But I did, um, I did inscribe myself in the in the PhD program, which in Germany you just find a supervisor who gives you a, a permit basically, and then you have to figure out your own research topic, uh, propose it yourself, figure out your own funding. And then initially, I had, a, I, had a, I wanted to research the Haitian Revolution. But that was a very tricky subject, also impossible to research from, you know, from Berlin without funding or or prospects. So I I, I, supervisor I found was Andreas Eckert at the Humboldt, a famous African history labor historian. So I kind of found something to do nearby that could kind of, you know, match. So um, I focused on Spanish Guinea, Er 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 -Guinea. Eckert-Guinea. And then there I had... I had um, researched a, a bit about it. Even my one of my main interests was uh, even about the West African migration to Spain in the contemporary period. And w- one of the things I found out is that a lot of the migration in the colonial period of Nigerians to Spanish Guinea was done on, you know, rickety fishing boats crossing the Bight of Biafra, quite similar kind of imagery, even though it was a very different situation. So I kind of, I had a sense that I wanted to historicize the, this, this kind of current, current phenomenon. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so before we kind of, you know, dive into the book, I think there are a few bits of background um, that will be helpful to provide, you know, even within the scholarship on West Africa, Fernando Poe is a fairly marginal topic, uh, and a place that you know probably many listeners to this podcast will know little to nothing about. Uh, so, could you provide us with a kind of brief historical sketch of the island in general, uh, and then specifically an overview of the history of labor recruitment in relation to the island?
1: Mm. Sure, so Bioko is um, a large volcanic island off 100 kilometers off Nigeria, and it's it has an indigenous population, the Bubi. The Spanish acquired it from the Portuguese in this kind of land swap treaty in the 18th century, but they didn't settle it. Um, instead, the British came, rented it, and used it as a base for their anti-slavery squadron. Um, and they, you know, used, hired the slaves that they freed, they hired as clerks, et cetera, as servants. And a lot of them stayed on the island. They, they were they formed the nucleus of the Creoles, of the Fernandinos. Um, they, in turn, independently set up the cacao plantations in the 1870s, initially in palm oil trade. And. Um, So they went looking for their own laborers in Freetown, but also wherever there was kind of an emerging labor market, the crew areas in Liberia, in Cabinda and the the Longo Coast. And so this phenomenon initially was kind of self-started. It was added to by a new wave of Spanish and Cuban planters in the 1890s after the kind of Cuban War of Independence. The Spanish used the island as a penal colony for Cuban independence people who were you know well-to-do bourgeois planters so they land on the island it's not a prison they just can live there or die there uh, and they set up a lot of the plantations so they um that kind of then increases obviously the i mean the, the scope of plantation production but also this new demand for intermediation in labor recruitment because you know where you're going to get laborers there's no enough there's not enough indigenous people you need to get uh, you need to find recruiters to to find you the laborers basically and then, and then over the course of the 20th century, there's different phases and waves of recruiters uh, sourcing labor in Liberia, in Nigeria, in Central Africa. Um, and that's what the book is about.
0: Um, and then despite that, you know, we're talking about um, quite a small island, I know your research took you to a number of different archives. So could you share um, a bit about your sources, uh, your methods, um, and reflect on kind of any challenges you faced in writing this history of touts or labor recruiters in coastal West Africa.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first went to the archive, I realized it should be straightforward because there's a couple of good, solid British colonial, some Spanish colonial reports about, you know, migration, the agents, the laws, et cetera. And a lot of even the more recent academic work kind of is a very similar framework. Um, so, I didn't want to repeat it. I didn't want to have this kind of colonial uh, approach. So the benefit of also studying a small place is that you get to read everything. I was kind of in the archive looking at different topics, different f- files, different departments, law, police records, etc. And there you also find things related to recruitment. It's not just, you know, the annual report uh, with, uh, with the overview. And then there's where you kind of start reaching into these kind of hidden worlds of how the recruitment and the migration and kind of daily life actually actually looked like Um, and this kind of it also from multiple perspectives from the spanish from the british um perspective because most of the most of the island the population was british west african nigerian laborers traders etc so there was kind of a lot of a lot of public a lot of british sources to missionaries Uh, traders, a lot of Germans, some French, et cetera. So this kind of multiple locations in the archive were kind of key for me to kind of, um, you know, find a new perspective on this and also a new conceptual perspective. Uh,
0: Now, just um, one more background question. Um, I know you'll be talking uh, a lot about touts and labor recruiters in our interview. Uh, And so it will be worth sketching out, I think, um, sort of how, who is doing this recruitment and how kind of where they are recruiting, all of this is not stable. Uh, so could you briefly sketch out this history for, for the listeners?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So who and, and where, that's why, I, that's why I took the whole of the Gulf of Guinea um, because recruiters themselves, they operated in waves, you know, uh, different periods, different political conditions, uh, different crises, economic crises in different places, et cetera. And the most interesting thing that I found is that the recruiters—they don't—they're not the same recruiters in different places. Uh, they adopt the same techniques, uh, but they can be, for example, the late 19th century. There were former former slaves, the, the Aguda from, from Dahomey, were were quite prominent recruiters. But also slave traders, former slave traders, were also prominent recruiters. The Efik from Calabar. Um, there was a few settler Spanish settler recruiters who were kind of recently arrived in the colonies in the 1920s, you know, easy money, quick money, to try to set up a plantation. Uh, they engaged in recruiting more in Central Africa and in Gabon and, and Cameroon. Um, there was a lot of the Nigerian recruits were actually women uh, traders, small traders who turned into kind of you know, human smugglers. Um, so there's this kind of, uh, you know, a, a totally uh, a kind of melange profile of, of who are these actually, of who the recruiters are and but i think the, the my key finding is that the recruiters drift it's not it, because the areas where the labor comes from isn't this kind of it's not an equilibrium the, the laborers don't come from the same place once laborers have gone to fernando po they leave and they don't come back it's a one contract thing you know you earn money you do something else you don't want to go back there it's kind of terrible plantation uh, production so um every, every two or four years, basically, you have to have recruits going into other corners. So there's this kind of rolling frontier nature to recruitment, which that's why it takes kind of place across the entire Gulf of Guinea over this kind of uh, over half a century.
0: All right, let's get into the book. Um, so your first chapter uh, largely looks at the history of the, sort of the contract, so the labor contracts uh, on the island. One theme is that the Spanish colonial labor office tried, often through the labor code, to control labor contracts to their own advantage, not surprisingly. Um, and that embedded in all of this is a contradiction that labor is framed as contractual but obligatory. Um, so, what were some of the key labor laws and historical developments uh, that gave way to this situation?
1: Mm. So the key institution is here the labor office which was founded around 1900 and they basically decree proletarianization that is everyone in this colony has to work for a living even if they don't need to uh, the labor code is a kind of constitution of this work dictatorship um where the you know the if you don't have laborers on the island what the, what you need to do is get other people to bring them there and once they're there then they have to work so um but then so th- that's why I, I analyzing the contract, I realized it's not just you know a simple device in this kind of legal term to stabilize tr- uh, a transaction, or to remove uncertainty, to make things transparent, et etc. The contract itself is kind of the base of the economy of, of Fernando Poe, because it creates these recruiters via the generation of credit. There's also a financial system here because these long contracts that the labor code imposed um, makes it possible to, you know, release large sums of money in recruiters' commissions, in advances that then will be paid back in, through the long contract and, and the laborers' work, of course. And this duration also has kind of 19th century legacies because it's basically the indentured contract that the Cubans used for the Chinese coolies. Um, they just use that as their as the kind of labor code, reducing the number of years because there it was eight years. Uh, mm-hmm. They reduced it to four and then two, because West African migrants wouldn't kind of go uh, for for longer than two years at a time. The crew had kind of set up this kind of upper limit of how long kind of labor migration would last.
0: Now, despite all of the efforts uh, by the Spanish along with various labor recruiters. Labor scarcity is a kind of common, enduring theme in the history of Fernando Poe. Uh, so what are some of the causes of this kind of continued scarcity?
1: So Fernando Po is quite unique in the region because it is kind of a, a big planting, big plantation, settler-focused kind of economy. And. Um, there's, there's a bit of it in in, in the Mount Cameroon and Ivory Coast, but it's uh, it, it it was a government sponsored th- sponsored thing because the government, starting in the with the Cubans, they just give new Spanish settlers uh, free land. They don't give them the labor initially. They tried to do they promised them the labor too, but then it's like we'll give you the free land. Um, they also helped the expropriation of land from the small farmers. A lot of them were Fernandinos, There were small cacao farmers they were expropriated to make to make space for kind of big spanish planters so you have these large plantations sometimes 100 200 kind of laborers uh, labor needs kind of growing um and you know they always exceed the the availability of labor because there was um there was this kind of you know cacao cacao frontier and speculation and quite uh, you know, profitable cacao production. So uh, there's this kind of different ways also of Spanish planters in the early 20th century in the in the Francoist period after the Civil War. So there's always, you know, new labor demands. And in the 30s, this particularly kicks off where, you know, there's 5,000 different kind of planters or entities that hire laborers. And then the labor demand is, you know, 20, 25, 30,000 a year or every two years. Uh, whereas at the beginning of the century it had been a thousand, and then and in this period when it really when the plantations really kick off is kind of where I mostly focus the book on, which is when also the the connections to the to southern Nigeria really really start.
0: Okay, um, so much of your book focuses on two techniques or methods of labor recruitment, panya and the dash. Um, so we'll start as you do with panya. So what is it? Uh, why does it get compared to slavery and what is the argument that you wish to make about the relationship or difference between the two?
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the two recruiting techniques are panya and Dash. They're pidgin words for panya is to take and Dash is to give, but, um, so panya is the, the taking uh, what does this mean you know it in in panya is a pigeon term for being taken ta- also being ripped off taken for a ride captured but captured kind of peacefully captured by a language by deception by trick um for example in a in a in a in a bad trade you say you know it's a Panya trade you know it's uh, you know it got ripped off or the, the quality isn't good it's kind of you know bad quality um so you know rec- the recruiting I call it that the that it took place like a panya trade because recruiting was actually based on on various forms of deception. You know, not only the deception about the destination. A lot of laborers were promised work in rubber plantations in southern Nigeria, in Lagos, and in Cameroon, but in the end were taken by by canoe to Fernando Po, and once on the island, they were forcibly hired. Um, So that's why in this narrative of the laborers that exist, there is this experience of capture and and captivity and and, and kind of forced labor. But the key difference is that the recruiting technique on land in Nigeria, there's no violence, there's no chains, there's no kind of capture. It's only once once you arrive on the island that that happens. But But nevertheless, the recruiters are kind of, you know, seen as the ensnarers. Kind of, you know, the the, the kind of new, the new slave traders, so to say, but it's actually, you know, methods are basically exactly the opposite. It's the it's the it's the it's the new imperial labor codes that actually kind of generate the possibility for this pani recruitment trade.
0: Um, I'll, now, sort of one of the uh, groups that you know occasionally sort of makes this comparison to slavery. Um, is the British government, and you kind of note how, you know, at times they often looked unfavorably on recruitment of Nigerians to work in Fernando Po, um, going so far as to consider the tout as a, quote, modern successor of the slaver. Um, so how did, what was sort of the British response, maybe how did that kind of change over time, um, and, and what impact did they have on labor recruitment within Nigeria?
1: Mm. Because the, the British they refer to the to the touts even in South Africa as these kind of um, you know neo slave traders. But you know what are their techniques? Like they they kind of malign them through with this kind of terminology in order to crack down on them. They're doing illegal yeah. work. They're crossing borders, bringing out laborers that aren't allowed to emigrate uh, unless they have a permit or unless they have a contract. Um, so this is a kind of a clandestine labor smuggling. And the people doing it, even though they are not slave traders, they're kind of referred to as, as new, new slave traders. But the British, in the end, they don't really care about, you know, the, the actual work, the destination, the, uh, the the abusive conditions on the plantations. They simply care about the the procedure in the recruitment. You know, you need an affidavit, you need a contractual uh, voluntariness, et cetera. So they tried to bring this into 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 Nigeria so that they can regulate it. Um but, you know, even this discourse, it doesn't actually, it attacks the intermediary, the, 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 the smuggler who they're trying to crack down, but it leaves the plantation infrastructure intact. You know, it's the, still the same plantations, still the same kind of abusive labor conditions, uh, but they kind of, you know, they, um, they just want it to be done procedurally in a correct way, but they don't actually kind of, because for, for most people, even the labor testimonies, the experience of slavery came from the plantation, not from the recruiters. So there, there's this interesting difference.
0: All right, and now, kind of, what is a dash? What's the history of this term, um, and how does it relate to labor recruitment in Spanish Guinea?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so dash is you know the giving from the Portuguese dow, um, don le don, and it has a it has a it's an important component in all sorts of economic history in in West Africa. Uh, it has sometimes it's referred to as as a, as a tip, a bribe, an advance. Um, it's this kind of Geyer calls it an ancillary to an exchange. That is, in order to complete an exchange, you need to give a dash beforehand. Um, and in relation to the to, to the contract, um, the dash kind of emerges as this type of wage advance. You know, something that you need to give before if you want them to actually kind of uh, sign a sign a contract in the first place or come with you to sign a contract. Um, So it becomes the key mechanism to hook laborers. Even the recruiters in in Spanish are called ganchos, which means to hook um, because they channel this credit released by the contract. But then the dash, it has many layers because the dash also kind of, it's an index of of quality because, uh, or dimension. So the longer the contract, the bigger the dash, Um, or for example, the, the more experienced you are as a worker, the higher the dash is for you as well because, you know, you have uh, labor skills, you know how to harvest cacao, et cetera. So it, it's just kind of – it's not just a single thing. It also has its own kind of uh, price range. Uh, so I tried to kind of really track this because this is, becomes key to understand the entire kind of re- labor and recruitment structure.
0: Um, and I know in in the book you say, quote, That sort of, you know, the dash is often inaccurately described as a wage advance. So, why is a wage advance not a kind of accurate way of of thinking about the dash? Mm.
1: Because the dash quickly escalated and it exceeded the formal wages. So, if the, let's say, the wages were 30% as a month for two years, around 400, uh, sorry, 700, the dash was 3,000. So you gave someone a dash and they, it was unclear how long the contract was. That's why part of this opacity of Panya is, you know, you don't know, you don't know how long you're going to stay there working, et cetera. They don't tell you that it's this four-year contract and um, uh, misinformation deception. So the dash, it becomes this kind of, um, you know, well above the wage. It's this kind of component of excess, of excess credit, of indebtedness. Um, and also this kind of index, because people happily take on higher dashes, even because they're experienced laborers, or even war- bad plantations who had a bad reputation, you know, brutal overseers, etc. They also had to offer higher dash to attract new laborers, but you know, people took it because it was it was kind of higher, and then ended up indented there. So it has this kind of um, it's beyond the it's beyond simply just a wage. It has its own kind of dynamic of mm-hmm. of debt, but also other dynamics.
0: So one of your sources is the Nigerian press. How did Nigerian journalists cover topics related to Fernando Poe? And how did Nigerian political developments shape or inform this coverage?
1: Mm. It's very interesting because It's actually Nandia Zikwe, who kind of really kickstarts the Nigerian press attention on on, on Fernando Poe. He had written about the Liberian Labour scandal with Fernando Po in the 30s, and when he founded kind of you know his various newspapers in the, the mid 30s, Fernando Po was constantly in the, in the in the kind of scandalous limelight of the Nigerian press, led by you know elite Nigerians. And for them, Fernando Po, Spanish Guinea, represented this kind of, you know, they, this kind of new slavery, etc. Um, the 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 recruiters themselves were also this type of new slave traders. Um, there's, but it's this kind of, it, it's different than the kind of European missionary kind of abolitionism of this new slavery that was kind of as a separate track. Because in Nigeria, in the press, it's more about this kind of you know, indignity, this also this geopolitical indignity, and it becomes a kind of channel also for anti-colonialism. In the 50s, 60s, once Nigeria is independent, the spanish still a colony, it becomes, you know, a big thing. You know, Nigerians are being exploited there, kind of abused there abroad, et cetera. And even our own ministers, uh, labor ministers from Lagos are kind of selling our own citizens abroad, et cetera. So it becomes a kind of vector for, for political attack. Um, especially by the, the the National Council for Nigerian Cameroon's ZIX party. Um, so it has kind of this, its own kind of media and Nigerian political dimension here. The, the, the very interesting press coverage is literally hundreds of articles around this. Uh,
0: now, it might sound so far, to perhaps to some people listening, that the recruited workers had little agency over their labor conditions and wages, um, and while certainly many of those recruited, you know, did find themselves stuck in unfavorable contracts, uh, you also find in the archives many examples of workers resisting, sometimes collectively and sometimes individually. Um, so, what were some of the techniques uh, that workers used to their own advantage?
1: Mm-hmm. So here there was a bit of a culture shock because a lot of the, even in Nigeria there was a relatively free you know, syndicalist culture, labor associations, social interest groups, etc. And once the Nigerians really start arriving, when the Francoists take over in 1936, it's, you know, a totally different political culture. No no right to gathering, no right to to even to petition, you know, response responses, jail. Um, so there's a lot of immediate confrontation with overseers, with police, etc. Um, but the the key vector of resistance which is kind of um not exactly this kind of oppositional resistance is the dash and um and i kind of analyze this increase of the dash as in situations where there is no cynicalism where there is no labor unions where you can ask for increased wages you can you know demand improving and conditions the dash itself actually fulfills or ends up in in a, in a similar function but through this decentralized way because labors uh, first if they if they don't like if they want to protest uh uh, uh you know bad conditions they f- they flee a plantation it's not that that's not that difficult helped by brokers and touts and recruiters who give them new advances to work in a better plantation um, so the dash becomes like a way out um it also kind of uh, it also then co- it consolidates the better plantations and the better working conditions. So, pr- working conditions progressively improve over time, um, not because the government decreed it, not because the workers organized, but because actually the DASH kind of incentivized this. And also, it led to increased wages because. The Nigerians were already there once they rehire they already know they get they know who pays the better dash they can actually get most of the dash rather than just the, the recruiter or tout taking most of it as their commission and just dropping off the labor there um so then yeah so the dash becomes actually this kind of key vector what i call kind of resistance in the sense that it it proposes um it challenges the 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 status quo of the of the of the plantation infrastructure mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, one of your findings is that there's this 20-fold increase in the value of the dash in just a little over 10 years, which is obviously quite impressive, that this is something that happens in collaboration with sort of workers and the touts. now, in your, your final chapter, um, you make a case for rehabilitating the concept of the Lupin loop, loop broker um, in terms of studying financial middlemen like the touts and recruiters um, who are sort of the focus of your book. Uh, as you put it towards the end of this chapter, you argue that if Lupin proletarization is not given a more expansive and dynamic role in imperial capitalism. It will remain reduced to a lens which categorically renders them as ghostly figures outside the domain of political economy and economic analysis. Um, So perhaps start out by briefly kind of explaining for listeners why the concept of the lupin broker or lupin pro- 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 proletariat um, is a bit vexed. Um, and then explain kind of what's at stake here, in your view, for historians of colonial labor and economy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that my kind of penultimate chapter is this quite elaborate, more conceptual piece to try to create the concept of the lumpen broker in the sense that the brokers themselves are kind of lumpen, you know, criminal smugglers. But also, they're the brokers of the lumpen. Uh, the, um, you know, they they represent, in the end, their their their, their interest, or they can, um, in this dynamic of the dash that I talked about. And then, so I do this kind of, you know, this it, it could it could be a bit this an arcane kind of philology of the term lumpen, and it's related to this kind of redundant Marxist jargon because it's kind of a neologism from from Marx and Engels. Um, But I think I I do propose it as a kind of, as an analytic to understand the historical emergence of labor markets in this case, but also generally because of the the, the techniques of the the touts, which are, you know, semi-criminal, lumpen techniques, erratic, shifting, uh, um, kind of scammy, etc., which squarely belong to the lumpen. And obviously, the lumpen and the proletariat is not a term commonly used in African history. Um, primarily because it's seen as kind of, you know, too too kind of, you know, French Marxist class obsessed, et cetera, or even just because of political contamination, like the Marxist-Leninist regimes in the 70s, you know, also labeled entire categories of vagrants and miscreants as, as lumpen to press them into forced labor, etc. cetera. Um, but I realized only after, because I had this article in Africa on the dash in 2016 and then a friend of mine talked to me oh you it, it sounds like a picaresque labor movement like you know picaresca this kind of spanish uh, literary genre about you know these kind of lumpen milieus you know vagrants beggars speculators smugglers uh, etc and then i realized you know i should this is a kind of a serious uh uh it has serious kind of conceptual potential because it actually explains the labor market. Other equivalents usually, you know, in other historiographies, they talk about, you know, precarious, informal, criminal, disorganized, super exploited, etc. But actually, the the key thing that I wanted to bring in with this lumpen is that the lumpen it also has a dialectical top, also the speculators, also the smuggler kings, et cetera, are part of this kind of lumpen class that it kind of can act politically as kind of a central conduit and rail through which the entire economy and politics actually unfolds. That's why, you know, give them a prominent role, because otherwise it's just seen as this kind of marginal, peripheral, underclass, outcast element, et cetera. Um, and I also have this kind of little theory of, you know, that colonial society itself it is kind of lumpenized from the beginning, because you can't, in Marx, lumpen is separate from production, um, because lumpen is also just trade, circulation, finance, uh, whereas pro- production is, you know, factory, uh, labor, etc. But you know, the entire constellation of, you know, of labor of labor only r- rose about through this kind of through the lumpen elements and even kind of uh, became dynamic through them. So in that sense, I really tried to also provide a kind of post-Marxist alternative In 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 labor history, which otherwise is a bit stuck in these kind of weird oppositions, liberal oppositions, free, unfree labor, uh, halfway categories, uh, recruiters just half half free, half unfree, depends. It's like no, they have their own their own dynamic, which is very much a lumpen dynamic, and that kind of is of central historical importance, which is what really Marx tried to do when he coined the term, give the lumpen a political role uh, in in history. In this case, in in France, but in my case, in, in the colonies.
0: Now that we've kind of gone through kind of the bulk of the book, um, what would you say are your book's key interventions or arguments?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I like the lumpen chapter, but I think also in the introduction, I kind of, I propose basically a, a theory of labor market c- uh, creation, this kind of, you know, emergence in, in unstable circumstances, what I said is shifting, or even in in uh, when they collapse also, it's usually because of, um, uh, of kind of... A, these kind of the presence of these contractors uh, and intermediaries um, sometimes illegal because otherwise um, usually in labor migration theory you have the figure of the intermediary etc the contractor but um, I think what's original in my book is that you know I I don't take as a starting point the fact that they're intermediary because that already implies that they have a kind of a conceptual function to intermediate. They already have a goal in mind to overcome a shortage, to smoothen out uh, disequilibria, to bridge labor demands, to spread information about jobs, et cetera. But, uh, but no, it's the, they're not in, in that sense intermediaries. They create, the, they introduce their own elements, uh, the touts, they introduce their own touting elements. Um, so here, this is how, you know, I find that these labor markets are actually being generated in this kind of lumpenized way through traps, traps, in the sense of panya uh, visual traps deceptions and credit traps um so and this in, this interesting element of bringing in this kind of you know the, the 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 financial element of money creation through the contract is it's it's also this kind of boom the labor market is born in booms um like a financial boom Or bubble, that's why it's also associated with swindle. And so I kind of link in the literature around kind of financial crisis, financial speculation, and labor markets. So I think that's kind of our outline introduction, probably the most kind of original contribution.
0: Uh, I know another outcome of your research was a digital archive, opensourceguinea.org. Um, so, do you mind maybe describing that a bit? Kind of what motivated you to set it up, um, and any feedback you've received, or kind of how doing this influenced your own research?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in I started early two thousand twelve or something, because I, as I said, I didn't come from history. I kind of I autodidact. I started reading, you know, different historical classics, Bodel Hobbes, one on my own. I didn't know what an archive was, and I was like, fuck, I should go to an archive. And then, um, and then, while I was at the archive, I was also reading a lot of Latour, Bruno Latour. It was kind of my Latour phase, 2011. And there he speaks about you know, the mode of science as re- referentiality, the footnotes, what you cite that, that creates authority, continuity, community, et cetera. And then realizing when I read the footnotes, you know, they cite archives. It's like, how, how the hell am I going to check what that footnote says? I have to travel to there, spend 10,000 euros. You know, so I was like, you know, we need a new system, you know, just click on the footnote, it brings you to the source. So then uh, theoretically, it was kind of inspired there, but also practically, because a lot of people were asking me for things. Once PhD students go to the archive, other professors, other people, oh, can you check this for me? So I was kept sharing PDFs of, of sources and as I was reading widely, I wasn't reading in the archive just the labor material, the economics, the law, et cetera. I photocopied everything, sent it around, and I was like, okay, let's just post it on, on the website. And um, yeah, this kind of in the spirit of sharing. I have this kind of history in Africa article where I kind of outline it. But I think the main impulse came also in this in the German milieu in Berlin, the PhD students, they have this terrible petty bourgeois kind of possessiveness of their material that they won't share. I found this, it's mine. I was just so put off by that, that I just had to do the opposite.
0: Um, well, Enrique, we, we've taken up, I think, enough of your time. Um, but before we end, I'd like to ask one more question, um, and that's sort of what you're working on currently.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I knew the answer because it's, I've been doing different things. So as I have a tout theory of the, of the labor market, I think I'm developing a, a tout theory of the money market. So I'm looking at kind of trade in the 19th century and before as kind of a, a, of a monetary trade because it passes through kind of different units of account that were known as kind of the coast monies, you know, the bundles, the price, the bar, the copper, et cetera, before these get homogenized into this kind of, you know, francs and, and dollars, et cetera. And then here the key mechanism that enabled a kind of profitable trade for the european traders was a kind of touting they they substituted the type of items that would still be valued at a certain value let's say five coppers but they would substitute or per se someone to accept this cloth this cheaper cloth etc for but for the same five so that's where the, actually the profit margin of the entire european kind of decentralized pre-colonial trade came from and this idea, I mean, I got it from Polanyi. He has this article from 1964 on the ounce trade and the sorting trade. But I've been looking at the, at the Gulf of Guinea again, 19th century, to kind of develop this kind of touting theory of the, of the money market. Um, and But I have various other projects. I'm also doing this translation of these kind of different type of, uh, of this German anthropologist from the late 19th century on primitive monies, to better understand the kind of multiple multiple currency situations in this period. And recently I've also been doing this funny uh profile of, of the current future leader of Ecuador Guinea. His name is Theodorin Ngemobiang, a uh, son of, uh, of of the dictator, a bit of an interesting figure. Um so um I'm also kind of writing, you know, some actual some political history there. And it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a very very entertaining. I've been doing it the past few months, so I haven't returned to my Money Grundrisse book because it's a bit like i don't know if you're watching succession the the hbo show it's a a mix of succession and the last king of scotland the the political reality of equatorial guinea you know the different brothers of the dictator trying to become king etc and um and and yeah so i'm looking forward to that coming out because i think it's an exciting kind of uh T- topic and it'll be relevant soon because he's going to be this kind of new young dictators you know a bit like kim jong-un or you know this gaddafi son or you know one of these dictator sons very flamboyant guy but he's actually quite interesting because he's kind of creating this kind of new populism uh this kind of um he's basically also this kind of trumpian element blames the immigrants for everything tries to have he- he's the head of this anti-corruption uh, probe drain the swamp type thing it's a really interesting development so that's what I've been kind of doing more recently
0: well that all sounds really interesting I, I look forward to, to reading it when it comes out um, and thanks again for doing this podcast
1: thanks very much Sarah it was it was great to, to see you again and, um, and yes we'll be in touch cheers <laughs>